the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us online, danproftshow.com, on social media, Facebook, Twitter, at Dan Proft Show, as well as at Dan Proft, and on Instagram, at Proft Dan. See what I did there? I reversed it. I said, President Trump, uh, if you were, were uh, consuming uh, nothing but Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu content over the weekend, you better pace yourself because uh, President Trump, of course, announced at Sunday night's briefing, the following. We will be extending our guidelines to April 30th to slow the spread. On Tuesday, we will be finalizing these plans and providing a summary of our findings, supporting data, and strategy to the American people. And his aspirational date has moved a bit from uh, Easter weekend to June 1. We can expect that by June 1st, we will be well on our way to recovery. We think by June 1st, a lot of... Great things will be happening. Mm-hmm. The other uh, big news, uh, or the, that was, I don't know if it was big news, but it was treated as big news by the Beltway Press Corps for obvious reasons. These are ticker watchers and, uh, and, and, and you know, rhetorical arsonists, uh, the D.C. Press Corps. So they took the range that uh, Anthony Fauci offered up earlier in the day the projected range of deaths from 100,000 to 200,000 Americans across millions of cases over the the life of the virus, at least before we're uh, in the on the downside of the curve, as it were. Uh, it took that and ran with it to do what they do, which is foment hysteria to promote unreason. Uh, so Tony Fauci at the task force briefing uh, addressed the issue of the models and what they can tell us and what they can't. The number I gave out is, you know, based on modeling. Um, And I think it's entirely conceivable that if we do not mitigate to the extent that we're trying to do, that you could reach that number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's possible. I mean, you could make a big soundbite about it, but the fact is it's possible. And they will, yeah. What we're trying to do is not let that happen. So instead of concentrating on the upper and the lower we're saying that we're trying to push it all the way down. But the second part of your question was, yes, we feel that the mitigation that we're doing right now is having an effect. It's very difficult to quantitate it because you have two dynamic things going on at the same time. You have the virus going up and you have the mitigation trying to push it down. But the decision to prolong, not prolong, but to extend this mitigation process until the end of April, I think was a wise and prudent decision. Uh, Dr. Burks and I spent a considerable amount of time going over all the data, why we felt this was a best choice of us, and the president accepted it. So in direct answer to your question, the idea that we may have these many cases played a role in our decision in trying to make sure that we don't do something prematurely and pull back 
when we should be pushing. But we're still in this place, as uh, we've been discussing in this show with innumerable guests, where we don't really have a handle on projections, which is why they can swing a, a handle on, on the necessary data to make informed projections. I should be more specific, which is why they can swing as much as they have swung. You can have a 2,500% correction by the author of the study of the Imperial that, that was uh, promulgated by the Imperial College London. You can have uh, Tony Fauci putting the number between 100 and 200, whereas there were models uh, just uh, of recent vintage that had the, the potential death toll in the millions. And uh, interesting uh, observations in a Bloomberg report over the weekend from a professor of epidemiology at Stanford, uh, saying his name is Steve Goodman, saying that um, the uh, confirmed coronavirus cases, that metric for the ticker watchers, you know, you see it on CNN all day, every day. Total cases and deaths, globally total cases and deaths, United States. You know what that tells us? Not a fracking thing. I mean, it tells us you know, carnage numbers, but it, it is in no way uh, a tool to elucidate anything important. The numbers are almost meaningless, says Professor Goodman. There's a huge reservoir of people who have mild cases and would likely not seek testing. The rate of increase in positive results reflect a mixed-up combination of increased testing rates and spread of the virus. Uh, What we need is more complete data, smarter data, and more coordinated data to communicate something meaningful about the extent of COVID-19 and how many people are likely to die, which hospitals are likely to be swamped, whether drastic changes in the way Americans live will start to slow down the spread of the virus. What we should be watching instead of what you've been force-fed by most of the Beltway Press Corps and the regional outposts, uh, he suggests one possibility is hospitalizations. That idea was also put forward by statisticians at uh, Berkeley. They argued the rate of increase in hospitalizations could reflect a growth of the disease, without being distorted by changes in the testing rate. Measuring death rates can eventually track the speed with which COVID-19 is spreading, as deaths represent a fraction of the cases, but there's a lag of some three weeks between infection and death, generally speaking, whereas hospitalizations give us an intermediate point. That estimate, uh, they estimate, the statisticians, that it takes between 11 and 14 days for someone to get sick enough to show up at a hospital. Uh, rates of increase in COVID-19 patients admitted to the ICU can provide additional useful data. Uh, and, and also, uh, the statistician says, um, uh, collecting this kind of data can help prevent what's happening from happening, which is the possibility that hospitals or ICUs will become overwhelmed, start turning people away, raise the threshold of how sick you have to be before being admitted. If you can get good real-time comprehensive data that provides better information about the decisions you make on resource allocation. You know, and even in a pandemic, we live in a world of scarcity. You got to make resource allocation decisions. President Trump talked about that with respect to all of the, uh, the, the, the engines of production that are uh, churning at present to produce ventilators and masks and face shields and the like. Uh, if we behave, uh, oh, excuse me, uh, once you have a rate, rate uh, handle on the rate of new COVID-19 patients admitted to hospitals and ICUs, you can start to forecast how many more will arrive in coming days, according to these statisticians. 
Right now, we're floundering in a sea of ignorance about who is infected and the fate of people who are infected. Uh, but uh, he is hopeful, is Stanford's epidemiology professor Goodman, that uh, scientists will get to the right data now that we have a handle on the data that's needed. Uh, he also says, despite the efforts to apply death rates at present in particular states or particular countries across the larger population, he says that uh, he's skeptical anyone knows the death rate of this disease since we don't know the true rates of infection. And this is where uh, the issue of all of the people who are asymptomatic who may have the virus comes in. The lethality rate, whether it's a, a few percentage points in one state or under uh, a percentage point in uh, other states and other countries, until you get through those uh, layers of testing, right, we've talked about before, the layers, uh, those presenting symptoms, the contact tracing to then find the people that they've been in contact with and make an assessment of those individuals, then frontline healthcare workers, and then representative samples of the population, the larger population, so that you can uh, do some modeling that's informed and get uh, those sort of median statistics, which can uh, which can can influence the decision making. That's sort of the progression, and uh, we're not there yet. But with what President Trump announced about Abbott Labs uh, tests coming online, and with the trajectory of tests that are being deployed being done, being processed, generally speaking, where we're north of 700,000 tests completed as of a Sunday night's briefing per Vice President Pence, you know, we're hopeful that we're, we're getting there and then we can get on that roadmap to reopening that uh, former FDA director, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, uh, talked about in both Peace in the Wall Street Journal as well as a more extensive report that he issued through the American Enterprise Institute breaking the road to reopening in four phases, phase one being slowing the spread. We're still in phase one. And uh, the uh, the triggers of to get from phase one to phase two, which is the beginning of the reopening, piecemeal reopening, sustained reduction in cases for at least 14 days, reports Gottlieb, advocates Gottlieb, really. Hospitals in the state are safely able to treat all patients requiring hospitalization without resorting to crisis standards of care. The state is able to test all people with COVID-19 symptoms and and the state is able to conduct active monitoring of confirmed cases and their contacts. So those first two layers, the knowledge and monitoring of active confirmed cases, as well as the contact tracing. And then we can begin the piecemeal reopening of America. This is the Dan Prof. This one goes out to the seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and uh, president trump at his uh, task force briefing on sunday evening along with his appearance on fox and friends this morning uh, made mention of some uh, positive developments, seemingly positive developments, certainly areas of optimism, and that is in two important spaces. One is testing with uh, a test developed by Abbott Labs coming online this week, 
and two is with respect to antiviral therapies. First on the testing. On Friday, the FDA authorized a new test developed by Abbott Labs that delivers lightning-fast results in as little as five minutes. That's a whole new ballgame. I want to thank Abbott Labs for the incredible work they've done. They've been working around the clock. Normally, this approval process from the FDA would take 10 months and even longer, but we did it in four weeks. Abbott has stated that they will begin delivering 50,000 tests each day. And then uh, with respect to the antivirals, starting with uh, the trial of uh, hydroxychloroquine plus the z pack want to point out that the hydroxychloroquine is being administered to 1,100 patients, people in New York, along with the z which is azithromycin. And uh, it's very early yet. It's only it started two days ago. But uh, we will see what happens. And then uh, he also talked about uh, something else we talked about last week, which is the a convalescent plasma treatment, uh, antibodies from those who uh, were ill and uh, have recovered. The FDA is also allowing the emergency use of a blood-related therapy called convalescent plasma as an experimental treatment for seriously ill patients. This treatment involves taking blood plasma from patients who have already recovered from the virus. So they're recovered, they're strong, Something was good in them that worked. And so we take the plasma from those people that have recovered so well, meaning their plasma is rich in antibodies against the virus, and transfusing it into six six patients very, very, very powerfully. And again, the administration is sort of taking a let a thousand flowers bloom approach to these potential antiviral therapies. Dr. Fauci mentioning last week uh, that just because we're talking about convalescent plasma treatment, just because we're talking about uh, hydroxychloroquine, doesn't mean that we're not also moving forward with clinical trials of remdesivir, which uh, produced some encouraging results with respect to two patients in Washington state. Also, we have this story from ABC News over the weekend, Telluride, Colorado, a company called United Biomedicals, working with San Miguel County in Colorado. Uh, to test all 8,000 residents of uh, for COVID-19 antibodies, making it the first community in the country to do widespread antibody testing. The idea is to learn from an individual's blood whether there's evidence the person has already been exposed and then make better decisions about whether quarantines and restrictions would need to continue and whether they need to be as widespread as they are in states and cities across the country right now. Lou Reese, the CEO of United Biomedical, saying the goal of this is to show you can predictably get an entire county back to its new normal as quickly as possible by using testing. And this has been something that has been emphasized by doctors Tony Fauci, as well as uh, Scott Gottlieb in an op ed in the New York uh, in the uh, Wall Street Journal over the weekend. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA director. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by uh, Rosemary Gibson. She's a senior advisor at the Hastings Center. She's an editor for uh, JAMA Internal Medicine, Journal of American Medical Association, Internal Medicine. Also the author of The Wall of Silence, The Treatment Trap, and China Rx, Exposing the Risks of America's Dependence on China for Medicine. That's a hot topic. Rosemary Gibson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Uh, thank you for having me today. How, how did you receive uh, the information that was presented by the, the full complement of the White House response team on the issues of potential antiviral treatments and the enhancements to testing that we're doing? Uh, we're seeing a full court press to uh, do everything possible to prevent the uh, uh, coronavirus, to stop its transmission, and to help people recover. And I think that's good news for the American people. What I wrote about in China RX, Dan, is how dependent we are on China for yes. so many of the core chemicals and the medicines to care for people when they are hospitalized with severe cases, well, which fortunately is a very small percentage of people. Yeah, I think it was shocking uh, when this really exploded for uh, most people, myself included, to learn that uh, something uh, upwards of 90 percent of the animating drugs in, in antibiotics used in this country were produced in China. So how dependent we were on that. But but please, you've studied this more than I have. Develop it. Uh, that's right. So if, if someone is hospitalized and needs to be on a ventilator to help them breathe, They'll be given sedatives, and these are common, you know, generic drugs that are used in hospitals all the time, but they're, and they're also used to care for uh, people with coronavirus. And they'll need some antibiotics if they get a secondary bacterial infection, and they will also uh, likely need um, medicines such as uh, pressors that raise their blood pressure if it goes dangerously low. And 90% of those core chemicals to make those mainstream generic drugs originate in China. And what we're seeing now is because the supply chain is all roads lead to China for these products, we're seeing countries such as the UK, Hungary, and India stopping the exports of essential drugs so they have enough to care for their own people. And again, this is because we've centralized the global supply of critical medicines in a single country. And so how do we uh, how how do we unwind that? How do the big pharma companies unwind that? And how quickly can it be unwound? Well, I think it's important to uh, bear in mind that these are the old generic drugs, which are 90 percent of the medicines we take. Mm-hmm. So the antibiotics you give to your children for ear infection, strep throat or pneumonia. These aren't made by the brand name companies. Well, you heard about in the, in the great intro that you did, those are the brand name companies and the innovator products. These are the ones that have been around for years, tried and tested, used in hospitals every day. And the manufacturing base to make those generic drugs in the United States is collapsing. Western companies, in about five years, there won't be any left because China has been undercutting them on price. And if you're an American company here, you're basically competing not against Chinese companies, but against the Chinese government because they're subsidizing and supporting their domestic firms. That's part of their aim to become the global pharmacy to the world. Yeah, the, and so we, it, it will take a while, but there are people right now, a lot of small companies are emerging that want to make critical drugs faster, cheaper, with great innovative technology. Again, these are the old bread and butter drugs, and they'll need some support to do that. And the White House has a draft executive order to buy American for our military. I don't know if you saw, but the USS Theodore Roosevelt, who was in the South China Sea patrolling there, and at least two dozen crew members were diagnosed with coronavirus. So they had to go into port. Right. And just imagine those young men and women, they're dependent on the adversary for their critical medicines. 
Yeah, when we come back, I, w- I want to pick up on this topic of how we replace those off-brand, uh, but, w- but, but do so unsure. More with Rosemary Gibson. She's the author of The Wall of Silence, The Treatment Trap, and China Rx, Exposing the Risks of America's Dependence on China for Medicine. Uh, we'll be back with more right after The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Rosemary Gibson, Senior Advisor at the Hastings Center, Editor for JAMA's Internal Medicine, and author of The Wall of Silence, The Treatment Trap in China Rx, Exposing the Risks of America's Dependence on China for Medicine. And we were talking about the uh, off-brand production of uh, important antibiotics, uh, uh, medicines for this country. And, Rosemary, you were describing how there is a, a manufacturing sector that is anxious to onshore the production of these off-brand drugs that are now produced in China, but they're going to need some support in this country. Give us a sense of, of what that looks who the, you know who they are and what that looks like, that support. Uh, Dan, these are small companies that have uh, emerged with brilliant solutions to make our medicines differently, again, faster, cheaper, with a smaller environmental footprint, and real-time quality control. Bear in mind, medicines made in China now, the FDA is not there. Their inspectors have left to keep them safe. So we're bringing in products from China, and they're not being inspected or tested. So we have an opportunity here to support these uh, small companies and even mid-sized companies that want to make critical drugs right here in the United States fully. You know, where we've all become dependent, the world has become dependent, is on those core chemicals to make thousands of our generic drugs. And there are brilliant chemists, brilliant pharmaceutical engineers here that are ready and poised to want to make them here to meet our short-term needs, but also our long-term needs, because this problem is, is going to persist. Well, I mean, since that is so integral to China's grand designs on, um, you know, being the preeminent superpower by 2030, and I'm sure the communists haven't given up on that dream at present, uh, how, how does that interplay with with China work if uh, that whole industry for them is shut down as it pertains to us? Well, as I predicted in China RX, regrettably, two years ago, that in the event of a global pandemic or natural disaster, if China shuts the door on exports, the United States and other countries will be waiting in line for essential drugs. And that's exactly what's happening. But we can fix it. This is absolutely fixable. This, and we're going to have another coronavirus or some other event like this in the future. It's just the nature of things. And we can be far better prepared and self-sufficient. We can stockpile the active ingredients here, fully made in the United States, and when we need them, have plants right next door to make the tablets and the pills, and we won't have shortages. We'll be able to export to other countries that are in short supply now. So we have great opportunity here to take advantage of the ingenuity and and brilliant minds that want to make our medicines here. We don't have to make all of them here, but at least enough uh, to ensure that we have what we need when we need them. It really is a matter of our survival. Yeah, it's interesting that you you raise all of these matters because uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb and some of his colleagues, a former FDA commissioner, uh, put out a a paper about uh, the roadmap for reopening, and it's uh, across four phases and phase four is rebuild our readiness readiness for the next pandemic. And certainly it, in, it includes developing vaccines and modernizing the healthcare system. But it also uh, the, a hot part of that debate is going to be uh, 
you know, rebuilding our healthcare system or refashioning our healthcare system, that's necessarily going to include the things that you're talking about. Well, I hope so. There's actually opposition to bringing generic drug manufacturing back to the United States, which is really quite remarkable. And the opposition clear. coming from where? There was a letter that went to the White House claiming that if we started up some Buy American provisions, say for the Department of Defense, that this would destabilize uh, the global supply chains. In fact, it would reinforce them because now they're in a shambles. We're hearing that U.S. drug wholesalers are allocating drugs, which is the industry term for rationing. Right. I was just at a hospital recently to give a talk on this subject, and the doctors were saying there's an antibiotic that's crucial that they can no longer get. And there are other antibiotics that they um, are in short supply of. Well, and the pharmacists describe how she goes out on the ambulance in her community, of, you know, as a volunteer EMS worker, and she said, "We don't have epinephrine on our ambulance." And I said, "So what do you do? Epinephrine is used to revive people." Mm-hmm. And she said, "Well, we just drive faster to the hospital." Oh boy, interesting too that the whole like uh, disrupt the supply chain, jeopardize the supply chain. That argument is going to be less compelling, I think, to policymakers in Washington after what we've seen with respect to the uh, trade war between the U.S. and China the last three years. Whether you agree with the policy or not, what we've seen is uh, companies in China that had their supply chains, U.S. companies that had their supply chains largely in China, start to migrate those supply chains either back on shore or to other Southeast Asian countries like Vietnam and Singapore. So they've shown the ability to be flexible and adjust with the times. I don't see why that couldn't be the same with respect to uh, medical products. We can absolutely do that, and I hope it happens. And I think this could be a silver lining of the coronavirus, and we create some level of self-sufficiency for our country. That would be a good thing. That would be. We're certainly looking for silver linings. She is Rosemary Gibson, Senior Advisor at the Hastings Center, Editor for JAMA Internal Medicine, Journal of the American Medical Association, author of The Wall of Silence, The Treatment Trap in China Rx, Exposing the Risks of America's Dependence on China for medicine, this is going to debate, be uh, the center of a debate that rages well after we've flattened the curve with COVID-19. Rosemary Gibson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. All right, on the uh, Sunday talk shows with the leftist bots that we're hosting, the big question that they were searching for somebody to answer in the affirmative, does President Trump have blood on his hands uh, because of their assessment of the administration's response? Now, Chuck Chuck Todd uh, over at Meet the Press, that uh, yapping little terrier, tried with uh, Joe Biden. Here's how that went. Do you think there's already, do you think there is blood on the president's hands considering the slow response? Or is that too too harsh of a criticism? I think that's a little too harsh. I think what's happening... Yeah, that's too harsh. Okay, so Joe Biden wouldn't take the bait. Uh, and how about Nancy Pelosi on Jake Tapper? Sure. <laughs> you can always count on Nancy Pelosi. Uh, what the president, his uh, denial at the beginning uh, was deadly. His delaying of getting uh, equipment to where it continues, his delaying getting equipment to where it's needed is deadly. And now I think the best thing would be to do is to prevent uh, more loss of life. Uh, just to clarify, make sure we got that right. But are you saying that, that his downplaying ultimately cost American lives? Yes, I am. I'm saying that. 
All right. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Indiana Republican Senator Mike Braun. Senator Braun, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, good to be on. Uh, so uh, Lindsey Graham reacted to that on Bartiroma, but I'll uh, give you a chance to react to Novo. Uh, your response to Nancy Pelosi's blood on his hands. It's not surprising at all, because I think she is now the <clears throat> focal point of uh, kind of the political counter to Trump. And um, I think, of course, what she forgets to mention and many others is the vector into this country was through New York City and the state of New York. And many of the officials there were uh, touting uh, the fact that, uh, you know, go out and do everything as normal when it comes to uh, New Year's Eve and don't uh, let the virus be uh, uh, over-sensationalized. Um, so that you've got all that there. Um, I don't think with what we've seen uh, with President Trump since his election that it's uh, surprising to hear statements like that out of um, you know, Speaker Pelosi. Um, she did it through impeachment, through delaying the USMCA. Um, and now I think that they've kind of weaponized this and President Trump's not going to get from hard partisans like her. It was interesting what Joe Biden said. I didn't, I did not uh, see that interview, just uh, kind of clips of it. Uh, he was couching his words a little differently. Yeah. But uh, by and large, uh, this is to be expected, and it'll continue right through November of 2020. Well, it's, um, it, it's interesting too because De Blasio on with Jake Tapper, same show that Nancy Pelosi was on. He's, you know, uh, to your point about uh, pronouncements, hey, uh, New Yorkers, life is normal. Go enjoy the parade. Go do this. Go to restaurants. Go to Chinatown. Uh, he said, hey, Jake, this isn't the time to look back. This is the time to look forward. So, yeah, yeah so look forward for them. And, and, and here's the other thing, too. Rather than, you know, following their uh, M.O. of cheap shotting, which we haven't done here, and, and Republicans have been pretty good at resisting the temptation, they say, look, the entire uh, ex, uh, uh, expert infrastructure with respect to infectious disease and NIH and CDC. You know, no one predicted this and predicted this on the scale for the better part of the last decade. So rather than cheap shotting, pot shotting people, how about uh, be I mean, to, to de Blasio's point, even though it's convenient, how about looking forward to address what's happening in real time and maybe make adjustments on a go forward basis for what the world looks like in a positive way after COVID-19? I mean, I think that's exactly what President Trump has done when he uh, talks about being aspirational. That doesn't mean disregard uh, the uh, expert advice. It just means that at some point there will be a pivot. And uh, I was one of the first senators and did a couple floor speeches on it that, hey, we do everything and throw the kitchen sink at knocking back the disease. Because I really believe until the ticker tape that – the media runs up in the corner of the screen, you know, again, uh, hyper uh, sensationalizing the whole thing uh, until that starts to level off and come down. Everybody is going to be on edge. It, it is unique. Uh, the disease has got so many peculiar characteristics, uh, but also, um, you know, we will get beyond it. And I think that rather than just kind of be holed up and depressed, uh, we do need to start talking about how, with the information we've learned for the last couple months, what we've learned from other countries as to how in a country as broad and diverse as ours, and so based upon uh, the kind of lifestyle that we've become accustomed to, which is not holding up 
and hunkering down totally. But uh, social distancing and quarantining when you need to, uh, according to the best advice, is smart. But I think we need to be looking at what the next act is and do you treat the entirety of the country like you obviously need to treat the state of New York New York City, other hot spots, any urban areas, uh, you know, Chicago, Indianapolis, uh, many of the other larger cities are being watched closely to make sure that uh, we've learned from that and hopefully can avoid, uh, you know, the catastrophe that's occurred in the state of New York and especially New York City. This is, you know, a opportune time to build that wall on the border to prevent people from Cook County coming in that you Hoosiers have always wanted, Mike. So you should take advantage of it. Uh, Senator, Senator Mike Braun, Republican senator from Indiana, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, great talking to you. Take care. Well, we appreciate uh, Indiana Senator Mike Braun speaking his mind, and you can do that in Indiana, but you can't do that everywhere. And uh, that's why our friend uh, Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla put together the number one political documentary of 2019. You remember it, nosafespaces.com, nosafespaces.com. And uh, while Hollywood is trying to shut them up, to no surprise, the good news is right now, No Safe Spaces is available to watch for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. So make good use of the time you have at home to watch No Safe Spaces. Share it with your family. There's a lot of content here. It's useful. A lot of opinions. And this is from across the political spectrum. That's the encouraging news is that there are leftists that are included in this documentary that uh, have some of the same concerns that a conservative thought leader like Dennis Prager has. Um, personalities including Van Jones, Cornell West, Alan Dershowitz are featured in the in the documentary, along with the Jordan Petersons and Tim Allens of the world. No Safe Spaces is a sobering reminder that no matter who you are, if you think or say anything the radical left doesn't like, they will come to shut you down. And this is an opportunity to support a film that shares your American values to eliminate these so-called safe spaces on college campuses and then the rest of what should be our free society. Again, nosafespaces.com. Check it out while it's available. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, uh, some are using their downtime more productively than others, and uh, this is a great time for the creative composers and producers to uh, take advantage of their Internet skills uh, as uh, uh, this individual or individuals did. I don't even know who did it yet, but uh, you want an earworm? This parody slash PSA per uh, Do Re Mi from The Sound of Music, Julie Andrews and the kids, take a listen. Let's start at the very beginning. A sore throat, a cough, and Wuhan. And in no time at all, there were one, two, three. And one went on a plane, took it overseas. 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 And that's how pandemics get started, you see. 
See if I can make it easier. Do not fear, but please stay here. Stay at home now, everyone. We must wash and clean things well. Cars, no long trips, just for fun. Don't let COVID virus spread. Isolate yourself at home. See your friends online instead. That's a healthy way to go. Oh, oh, oh. Do not fear, but please stay here. Stay at home now, everyone. Don't tell me you're not singing along. We must humming. wash and clean things well. Cars no longer such as Don't let COVID virus spread. Isolate yourself at home. See your friends online instead. That's a healthy way to do. Not fear, but just stay here. Time to all self-isolate. Wash your hands, use lots of soap. Don't go further than your gate. Social life must stay online. Keep two meters clear of me. Watch TV, drink lots of wine. That will kill COVID-19. At least that's a peppy earworm that'll put a skip in your step. I mean, how well done is that? That's good stuff. Now, fortunately, she's in uh, Salzburg, Austria, not uh, Honolulu, Hawaii, or New York, New York, or Chicago, Illinois, where she and the kids would have been immediately ticketed, possibly arrested, for uh, skipping around in the meadow. This is the Dan Prof Show. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. President Trump at the Sunday night task force briefing updated us on the uh, trials going on for antiviral therapies to treat those infected with coronavirus. Uh, Here's uh, one trial going on with the anti-malarial drug and the associated z pack want to point out that the hydroxychloroquine is being administered to 1,100 patients, people in New York, along with the z pack which is azithromycin. And uh, it's very early yet. It's only it started two days ago. But uh, we will see what happens. The FDA is also allowing the emergency use of a blood-related therapy called convalescent plasma as an experimental treatment for seriously ill patients. 
This treatment involves taking blood plasma from patients who have already recovered from the virus. So they're recovered, they're strong, something was good in them that worked. And so we take the plasma from those people that have recovered so well, meaning their plasma is rich in antibodies against the virus, and transfusing it into six patients, six patients very, very, very powerfully. And there's other trials going on as well. I mean, Tony Fauci talked about this a couple of days back, uh, remdemis- remdemisvir, which uh, held some promise with uh, its use in a couple of patients in Washington state. So parallel tracks with respect to these potential antiviral therapies. Uh, our uh, next guest uh, has another idea on a way to treat uh, COVID-19 infection. He is Dr. Bradley Bale. He's an internationally recognized pioneer in the prevention of heart attacks, strokes, and diabetes. Co-founder and principal instructor in the Bale Deneen Method, clinical assistant professor, School of Medicine at Texas Tech, Health Sciences Center, the Red Raiders, and an adjunct professor at Texas Tech School of Nursing. Dr. Bale, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Happy to be on your show. Well, we read uh, the piece that you penned for thefederalist.com with a colleague. Uh, Tell us what uh, another remedy could possibly be to help abate the COVID-19 infection. Yeah, well, understand I'm a preventative physician, so I get excited when I find ways where you can prevent something from happening in the first place. And we have excellent research that was published 18 months ago by Dr. Sundeep Ramalingam, and he showed in that study that the cells that line the nose and the throat are capable of creating hypochlorous acid. Hypochlorous acid kills any virus. It'll also kill any bacteria. And then his study actually showed it did kill the coronavirus. It obviously wasn't COVID-19 strain because that hadn't been in existence yet, but it really wouldn't matter. Hypochlorous acid will kill any virus, and that would include COVID-19. What was exciting in his research, he showed that the amount of hypochlorous acid these cells can generate depends on the concentration of chloride that their tissues bathed in. So when you bathe the tissue of the nose and the throat with 3% saline, basically salt, and that's about the equivalent of what we have in nature with the ocean, those cells will generate enough hypochlorous acid to greatly mitigate the severity of any cold, decrease the duration of the cold. And what I found most exciting in a pilot study he did of this, it cut the spread to household contacts 35% and the shedding of the virus about 66% when people would do this nasal irrigation and gargle with salt water. You create your own body can kill this. So my thought is a lot of people right now are innocently passing on COVID-19 before they even have symptoms. And we're now getting research with COVID-19 that during the first five days of the infection, when people start to notice maybe they're having a little nasal congestion, the virus is replicating rapidly and it's in a very contagious state. And if people would use this nasal irrigation and gargle, they could prevent a lot of the spread. 
And if you can only imagine if everybody in the United States, whether they had symptoms or not, whether they knew they had the virus or not, if everybody would do this, theoretically, you could curtail the spread of this virus very significantly in a short period of time. Yeah, yeah, I want to get to the homebrew in a second, but but the World, <laughs> the World Health Organization says uh, no evidence that regularly rinsing the nose with saline has protected people from infection with the new coronavirus. How do you respond to that? Yeah, absolutely. How could there be? The new coronavirus just came on the scene, so mm-hmm. nobody's had time to do a study with that. Mm-hmm. I think Dr. Ramalingam is doing a study right now, but the study that he did had coronavirus in some of the people that were ill, and it worked effectively. To blunt the severity and the duration of the of the virus in the in the study that that doctor did, you reference correct? That's what that's what occurred. Not only that, but it decreased the spread to household contacts thirty five percent. This seems to me starting from the premise which President Trump mentioned on Friday and which uh, a couple of doctors wrote about with respect to the FDA as well in the Wall Street Journal last week, which I agree with, the idea that we should go from safe and effective for treatments back to safe as the standard to bring these treatments online, which it used to be. And if there are no discernible side effects, as I don't think there would be in a case with using hypertonic saline saline solution, then why not try it? I mean, even if it doesn't work for you, that you're, there's no downside to this. There's no side effects that are discernible, are there? No, absolutely. It's safe. It's simple. It's inexpensive, and most everybody has salt at home. <laughs> so, so what are what are the ingredients? How do you make this since you can't get it uh, off the shelf? Yeah, you'd want to get four cups of water, boil it. You'd want to boil it for a couple of minutes, and then you put in two tablespoons, tablespoons of salt, preferably non iodized and then you'd let it cool and then you get that solution in a dish or they make apparatuses of course that help do the nasal rinse you can literally just put your head over the saline solution and then you want to do both nostrils and then gargle and for people who are symptomatic in the study they did with it They did it every two hours or even more often the symptoms came back. For people who are asymptomatic and don't have any known exposure, I would recommend do it three times a day and just assume the worst that maybe you have it. And if you're doing this, you're going to kill it before you can spread it to anybody else. To me, it just seems real simple. If people believe in washing their hands, why in the world wouldn't people believe in bathing the nose and the throat with this safe solution that can kill the virus. I, I, I just don't understand it. It's like, you know, right now we have mainly a defensive posture against this virus. Let's just try and hide from it, which helps. And I'm not saying we need to continue social distancing, but we need more offense in this game if we're going to win this battle. And this is a simple offensive move that everybody in the United States could do. It's not expensive. It's safe. And in my opinion, I think it would curtail the spread of this virus very significantly. And we'd see the results of that within two weeks. That is, it does seem rather elegant in its simplicity. I got to say, I wonder, I wonder how your colleagues, uh, those in the medical community are responding to this piece and your suggestion. Well, we have a huge Baldonine method following, of course, with healthcare providers. They're all doing it. They're all exciting. 
excited about it, and they're all telling their patients. The science is solid. These studies were published in scientific reports by Nature. That's one of the best scientific journals in existence. Mm -hmm. The -hmm. science is absolutely solid. There's no reason scientifically to believe this wouldn't work. Zero. And I won't love the study when they get it done. But to do that study, it'll be a couple of years. We don't have the time right now. We need to put an end to the spread as fast as we can. And this is a simple, safe, easy way to do it. And as, as you say, the only side effect is you have to remove yourself from Netflix for a couple of minutes to do this. Uh, so that seems, that seems like a reasonable trade-off. All right. Dr. Bradley Bale, internationally recognized pioneer in the prevention of heart attacks, strokes, and diabetes, co-founder and principal instructor in the Bale-Denine Method. Clinical Assistant Professor, School of Medicine, Texas Tech Health Sciences, and an adjunct professor at Texas Tech's School of Nursing. And we'll uh, tweet out his piece from The Federalist uh, about this uh, this home-cooked remedy for uh, dealing with COVID-19. Dr. Bale, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Do the saline. Stay safe. All right. You too. Come on, next to me. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show just talking to uh, dr bale and um, here's uh, an interesting uh homebrew remedy the president of belarus alexander lukashenko uh, insists that vodka and saunas will cure the coronavirus uh, and uh, claims that nations have gone into lockdown or in the throes of uh, psychosis, according to a uh, report in the New York Post. So there you go. So maybe take that uh, that homebrew saline solution that uh, that uh, Dr. Bale advocated and uh, mix it with vodka and have it in a sauna. No, I, I think maybe just stick with Dr. Bale and... Um, generally ignore the president of Belarus, but uh, vodka and a sauna, I, I wish it were true. I wish it were that easy. Uh, all right. I wanted to get to uh, this column from Peter Hitchens, uh, Peter Hitchens, who is a notable academic as well as journalist, uh, brother of uh, the dearly departed Christopher Hitchens, also a uh, noted journalist and author, of course, in his own right. Uh, he talks about uh, the great panic demic happening in Britain. And of course, this is a Britain that in recent years has really uh, moved against anything that we would uh, recognize as uh, First Amendment protections with uh, police knocking on the doors of people who post on social media with the wrong pronoun. So this is not exactly the uh, quintessential free society, but it's getting particularly worse. And uh, he uh, writes about uh, the he he's getting for being an independent thinker, asking questions. When I predicted roadblocks in my column two weeks ago, which I did, I did so out of an instinct that we were entering on the on the craziest period of our lives since the death of Princess Diana. And now there are such roadblocks, officious, embarrassing blots on our national reputation. Uh, national lockdown was instituted last week, Monday. And... Uh, he uh, talks of lonely walkers on remote, empty hills, publicly pillaring individuals for not obeying the regulations. 
despite the fact that it's generally hard to see what damage these walkers have done. This is the same thing we see in American cities like Chicago, where the lakefront is shut down. People can't have a solitary walk on the lakefront or a walk with their dog on the lakefront without a fear of citation from the police. Uh, New York, Honolulu, we're seeing it around the country. Wait till I get to Kentucky, which I'll get to in a second. And here's something interesting. Uh, so Hitchens was a former foreign correspondent uh, who covered USSR. He writes, as a former resident of the USSR, I can tell you this sort of endless meddling by petty authority in the details of life, reinforced by narcs, is normal in unfree societies, such as we have now become for an indefinite period. It is, by the way, also a seedbed for corruption. He goes on to uh, note, it's sad that far too little of uh, the uh, overreaction, the panic-demic, is being reported as prominently as it should be by our supposedly diverse and free media, especially the BBC, which has largely, largely closed its mind and its airwaves to dissent. Sound familiar? Think about the D.C. press corps. It's quite funny that a statue of George Orwell stands by the entrance to the BBC bearing the inscription, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. Ironies abound. Uh, he also notes something that uh, the overwrought press won't, which is the revision down, as I discussed with, uh, uh, as uh, we will discuss with uh, Dr. Potter, who is a, uh, uh, Jessica Potter, who's a, uh, a respiratory specialist in the UK, well, that she's coming up. But I want to discuss this with her, that Imperial uh, College London study and the revision down by uh, Neil Ferguson, the author of that study, who now says, as Hitchens recounts, the intensive care units will probably cope. He conceded a point made by critics of the panic policy that two thirds of people who die from coronavirus in the next nine months would most likely have died this year from other causes. We've talked about the, the extent of and number of. Uh, contributing underlying conditions to so many of the people who have unfortunately passed away. He also notes the descent of respected epidemiologists, scientists like Sunitra Gupta at Oxford University, who's a professor of epidemiology, suggesting that fewer than one in a thousand of those infected with COVID-19 will be ill enough to need hospital treatment. Um, he uh, says, when I argue against the folly of the overreactions of the illiberalism, I am accused of not caring about the deaths of the old. I'm old. Turns out he's 68. It's false. I care about as I care about the deaths as much as uh, I care as much about the deaths of others as anybody. But as, as a result of my taking a stand, I've received private support from people inside the NHS, National Health Service. Seriously disturbed by what's going on. Hmm. Now think about uh, those observations in this context. Kentucky. Uh, the uh, governor, Bashir, new governor, has set up a, a hotline where Kentuckians can call to rat out their neighbors. This is the message you receive from Governor Bashir when you call the hotline the state has set up in Kentucky. By working together and being good neighbors, we're going to get through this. I want to thank you for calling the 
COVID-19 reporting hotline. The purpose of this line is to report observations of noncompliance with restrictions on workplace and public gatherings that Kentucky has taken to stop the spread of coronavirus and keep your family safe. The governor tells the caller, if you're aware of an establishment or gathering that isn't complying with the state's orders, work from home instructions or social distancing procedures, please stay on the line to speak with an employee in our labor cabinet. Is it overreacting? Is it Orwellian? To go back to Hitchens. When you have a effort to convert ordinary citizens into sentinels of the state to observe and report on their non-conforming brethren. Does that concern you at all? Concerns me. Should concern you. And the real concern is that the politicians don't make these kind of moves without popular support. So, yes, there is a, a bit of, uh, uh, of uh, taking advantage of fear to institute control. But there is also the necessary popular support for that very taking advantage as the administrative state, as the technocracy expands, the individual shrinks. But importantly, and this cannot be forgotten, importantly, it does so largely with the assent of the shrinking individual. So thinking about uh, what Peter Hitchens has to say about the U.K., what we're seeing in Kentucky, de Blasio threatening synagogues. If you don't close, you'll be closed permanently. A mayor shutting down houses of worship, threatening to remarkable times. And it's a great time as you're shut in in so many places to check out No Safe Spaces. NoSafeSpaces.com is where you can find the number one political documentary of 2019 for a limited time. This is the documentary that's produced by our friend and colleague Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla revealing how America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas, unless it's uh, ratting out your neighbor in Kentucky, it appears. An opportunity, this is an opportunity to support a film that shares your American values. No safe spaces. Are you reeling in the east? Stowing away the time. Are you gathering at the tees? Have you had enough? You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We want to um, span the globe to see how other countries, particularly in the West, the free societies in the West, are handling the viral outbreak as uh, the uh, cases have increased and you've got uh, high-profile infections like British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and uh, 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 members of the royal family and so forth, uh, thinking about England. And, And then there's also curious decisions, as we've seen elsewhere, Decisions that seem to run in contradiction with one another. So, for example, in Chicago, uh, you can't uh, walk on a bike trail with your dog, but you can take public transportation. Uh, you can congregate in a in a, a liquor store, but you can't walk alone outside on the lakefront. Hmm. In uh, England, this is interesting. Uh, The column from Peter Hitchens over the weekend in the mail, uh, the Brits are flying drones to shame someone that goes on a hike with no one else around. Uh, And uh, they've got a shutdown order similar to what many states in America have. And yet there's this story from The Guardian. 
Uh, large firms are chartering planes to bring in labor from Eastern Europe. 90,000 petitions need uh, positions, excuse me, need to be filled many in just a few weeks time in order to pick fruits and vegetables from British farms. One leading supplier was looking to bring in 10,000 laborers, half from the EU and the rest from Eastern European countries, Russia, Moldova, Ukraine, Belarus, Georgia, Barbados. Um, Russia, Moscow, the mayor of Moscow just shut Moscow down. Although Bulgaria is on countrywide lockdown, farm workers are, are classed as key workers and can move around the country, even though most airlines that operate in Bulgaria are grounded. One uh, farmer said, we're talking about chartering planes to bring workers in, a cost of uh, 10,000 pounds for an hour's flight carrying 229 people. So uh, how do you square the circle on these apparently contradictory policies? For more on what's happening on the ground in the U.K., we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Jessica Potter, respiratory specialist, doctor working in London, member of Every Doctor, which is an organization that campaigns for the working rights of doctors. And uh, she was in self-isolation until recently. She actually wrote about it in an op-ed in the New York Times. But uh, as I understand it, she's uh, out and back to work. And we appreciate her taking the time to join us. Dr. Potter, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. So um, can you help us with uh, what seem to be contradictory policies, uh, as I was just suggesting, the uh, report from, per the report from The Guardian? Um, I, yes, I heard what you were saying about uh, flying in people to help uh, staff and provide um, uh, people working to, in our farms. I think this just reflects the globalized society in which we live and the way in which that clash, clashes with um, frequently observed both in the UK and the U- US uh, anti-immigrant politics. And um, I think that this virus has really shown us that uh, we do live in a global world. It does not uh, see borders. And uh, we need to uh, radically reimagine the societies in which we live uh, such that uh, we 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 work with um, our globalized world and uh, not uh, with the borders. Well, well, but I'm I'm I mean I'm all for the free movement of labor in normal times. But I mean, does this strike you as somewhat curious that you that uh, you would allow people from uh, the Eastern Bloc or frankly anywhere else to be flown in at the same time you've got a country on lockdown? Absolutely, and it's this balance between um, ensuring that we uh, provide uh, food for people, and um, and yet um, controlling measures to uh, restrict the movement of, of viruses. And um, I, I think that there are a lot of contradictions in in. Um, in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, when we come back, I, I want to reference uh, this op-ed that you wrote in the New York Times. Now, this was a week ago, more than a week ago, and, you know, every day is a lifetime in this with respect to this pandemic. But you made some interesting observations, and I want to, now that you're back at work, get a stop, look, and listen from you about how things are today in Britain as compared to how you described them back on March 18th when your op-ed posted. More with Dr. Jessica Potter, who's a respiratory specialist doctor in London, right after this.
fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Dr. Jessica Potter. She's a respiratory specialist doctor working in London. She's a member of Every Doctor, which is an organization that campaigns for the working rights of doctors in the U.K., and Dr. Potter, again, thanks for being with us. In the uh, op-ed you wrote in the New York Times that uh, was published on March 18th, you talked uh, about Britain heading into an abyss. And I wonder, now that you're back at work and we're a little, a few days now removed from that op-ed, what the status of things are in the U.K. from your perspective. When I first went off into isolation, uh, it was after seeing one of the first cases that our hospital had dealt with. Since then, most of the patients on our intensive care unit have coronavirus. We have doubled, if not tripled, the capacity of the number of patients that we can ventilate, and that's in the space of 14 days. Does that mean that you have the necessary infrastructure to accommodate the demand, or it's being, uh, it's being stretched to the limits at present, or, it's, or you're already overwhelmed, or where is that at? We're not at the position where we are already overwhelmed because we have been able to mobilize nationally and both um, locally and nationally to ensure that we upscale rapidly our ability to provide critical care for patients. Of course, this means that there will be people who do require non-critical care for illnesses that are not coronavirus, such as cancer, for example. There is significant concern amongst those populations about what a delay to their treatment will mean. It's, of course, important to consider, for example, the risk to people who are having chemotherapy of contracting uh, coronavirus. We know that the mortality or the, um, how many people might die who are on chemotherapy is significantly high in that group, and it's a balancing of risk between whether we can wait and delay their treatment versus the risk of giving them treatment, which might put them at increased risk. There are other uh, less urgent concerns, but still um, of concern to people, people, for example, awaiting hip operations, knee operations, and those are going to be delayed, and that means there will be people living in pain waiting for those operations to happen. However, our focus has to be on saving lives right now, and that is what the NHS is mobilizing to do. Uh, One of the issues in America has been making sure that frontline medical professionals like yourself have the necessary personal protective equipment when treating patients so you don't see, obviously, a rash of infections among those that are trying to treat the infected. And I wonder if the supply of that sort of equipment has also been an issue for you and your colleagues. It is certainly of significant concern amongst our members and on the ground amongst healthcare workers. One of the key issues has been difference in advice from Public Health England, um, who are the equivalent of our, uh, your CDC, the WHO guidance. Uh, so we are um, advising FFP3 masks rather than FFP2 masks, which is WHO advice, so that's a stronger recommendation. But we don't necessarily recommend long-sleeved gowns or visors, which the WHO have recommended. I am assured that the evidence base behind our recommendations is strong, but they have yet to provide it to us. In addition, there's been issues with supply chains and getting the right equipment to the front line. We are fortunate in that we have um, 
a plan for flu pandemic and stockpiles for that. And so it has been a matter of getting those stockpiles to the front line rather than having to produce them from scratch. But those will run out and we do need to think about producing more and quickly because we are seeing healthcare workers who have already died from uh, coronavirus and it is absolutely our responsibility to protect those people who are working on the front line. I wanted to get your reaction to the uh, revision that was made uh, last week by uh, Neil Ferguson, who was the lead author of this study that came out of Imperial College London that was got so much attention, the projections of of the uh, deaths of both Brits and Americans if nothing was done um, based on the real-world data and the things that have been done. He revised down his projection of 500,000 Brits to not to exceed 20,000 is his sort of latest uh, projection. And again, you know, models are living organisms and they need to change with the reality on the ground. And that's apparently what his uh, what he did with his model. But I wonder if, if what that signifies is something that you're seeing, which is that Brits are uh, taking the social distancing and isolation guidelines and that they're starting to do or have been doing the things that need to be done in order to to borrow a phrase, flatten the curve in the UK? I've certainly seen a dramatic change over the course of the last 10 days from initial guidance about social distancing, which really uh, pe- some people were um, adhering to, and those uh, people uh, may have felt already particularly anxious about this and enacting policy uh, before it was it even became policy. Um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been announcing what he is about to do, along with Professor Chris Whitty, who's our Chief Medical Officer. They have been coming onto television and saying, uh, we are telling you or advising you to do this now, but in a week's time we will probably advise you to do this. And so there's been this kind of gradual um, uptake of the advice with increasing kind of stringency. There's been a lot of critique about whether or not they should have closed things down sooner rather than later. But only time will tell um, whether or not we have done things too late. As I said in my article, um, having been at home for, you know, 10 days, I certainly understand these feelings of of cabin fever and how difficult it is for people to stay at home, particularly people who don't have um, uh, the means that I do. And it is absolutely vital that um, all governments look at protecting the most vulnerable people in our society to be able to uh, help them to follow government guidance because it's not that easy if you do not have a steady income, if your uh, rent uh, or your housing is not protected. Um, but um, things have changed. So a week ago when I went out um, to go and get some food, there were lots of people in our local park. And in fact, we went out quite early. I've got a young young child. And after about a couple, about an hour of being out, I felt that things had got too busy and I was worried and we came home. Mm. They've now closed a lot of the larger parks to stop that from happening. Uh, people have been told to stay at home rather than advised to. Um, more uh, strict advice around how often you should go out and why has been provided. And uh, I, I do see, um, you know, living in one of the busiest cities in the world, in London, uh, there are very few people on the streets. She is Dr. Jessica Potter, respiratory specialist doctor working in London, member of Every Doctor, an organization that campaigns for the working rights of doctors. Dr. Potter, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time and insights, and stay safe. Thanks very much. Take care.
listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Boy, talk about uh, contrast this weekend. Hillary Clinton tweeting out after the U.S. Uh, uh, became the country with the most COVID-19 cases in the world. He did promise America first, quote unquote, Hillary Clinton. Uh, always the class act. It's important that uh, you think about Hillary Clinton. During this pandemic, Hillary wants you to think about how bitter she is. She didn't finish first in 2016, speaking of first. And uh, I know what you're thinking. Gosh, it would be so different under a, a President Hillary, wouldn't it? If, uh, if only we had a relevant case study that could help inform that view. Hmm. This from the BBC. The fact that Clinton's kind of took over things after the earthquake and did a pretty poor job of it translates to why the Haitians have a pretty dim view of them. What would the Clinton Foundation be doing now if Hillary were in charge other than uh, trying to wire up the uh, phone contracts and development deals for the uh, most afflicted countries, particularly those that uh, fly below much public scrutiny, right? Mitch Album, the uh, fabulist. Remember about 15 years ago, Mr. Tuesdays with Maury was caught uh, reporting on something that didn't happen with respect to two Michigan State players attending a Final Four game they didn't attend. He did lose his job, of course. Uh, he is uh, bitching in the Detroit Free Press about uh, President Trump not mentioning the Mich- Michigan governor by name, Gretchen, whoever she is. It's a politician's egos. That was what we should be thinking about in this moment. Contrast that with uh, the passing of Tom Coburn, Dr. Tom Coburn talking about a lot, a lot of doctors these days. Dr. Tom Coburn, senator from Oklahoma, who uh, passed over the weekend at the age of 72, complications from prostate cancer. Think about the contrast between the politicians and the politicians in the media of today versus somebody like Tom Coburn. He was. This is why he was, uh, as just a senator from Oklahoma, why he's generating national attention, not just among conservatives. He was a different, different cut of guy. Tim Carney over at WashingtonExaminer.com is the best uh, eulogy I've read. He uh, talks about how Tom Coburn uh, didn't play the earmarks game. He talked, uh, he uh, writes about Tom Coburn and his philosophy on his position as a U.S. senator, somebody who had term limited himself in the House and kept that promise, term limited himself in the Senate, kept that promise. Carney writes, while it was his job to represent the interests, views, and needs of Oklahomans, he was not supposed to favor his constituents over others. Represent but not favor, going back to the founder's vision of a, and, and, and Edmund Burkean vision of a representative Republican form of government, actually. This view of the job, writes Carney, was the opposite of most senators. Views. It also rubbed a little uncomfortably against my own localist sentiments. But uh, Coburn explained to Carney, it's the idea of holding an office with an open hand. I remember the moment precisely he was leaning forward in his chair and, and had his hand clenched, and then he opened it. I swear I imagined a bird freed from his grip now perched on his palm. He wasn't going to hang on to his job at any cost. He wasn't going to compromise his principles. He wasn't going to bribe his constituents. He was going to do the job and hold on to it with an open hand. Doing the right thing in this town often requires a willingness to lose much of what you have. Every journalist needs to be willing to write the column that will lose him access or even his job. And we'd be better off if we had more lawmakers willing to lose their job by casting the right vote. More lawmakers like Senator Tom Coburn. Rest in peace. This is the Dan Prof Show. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. Website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. I uh, recognize that China is not being straight with us about COVID 19, and why should they be straight with us on this? They're not going to be straight with us on anything. So we have to understand the propaganda that emanates from the Chinese communists. Uh, What about the WHO, the World Health Organization? I appreciate that some of their special envoys and others affiliated with the WHO are medical professionals, doctors, and they're earnest and genuine. What about the political leadership of the WHO in terms of being uh, an unqualified ally in this fight against uh, the COVID-19 pandemic? I raise the question because of this uh, exchange between Bruce Elward, who is a senior advisor to the director general of the WHO, in an interview uh, he was giving online to uh, a journalist asking about uh, Taiwan and uh, whether or not it's time to recognize for the WHO to recognize Taiwan exists and to make Taiwan a WHO member. I mean, particularly in an environment where it seems like there are some lessons in dealing with this pandemic we could learn from Taiwan. Hello? Sorry, I can't hear. I couldn't hear your question. Okay, yeah. Let me let let me let me repeat the question. No, that's okay. Let's move to another one then. Right, because because I'm I'm actually curious on talking about Taiwan as well on Taiwan's case. Bye. She asked him about Taiwan and talking about the case study that Taiwan provides. Then he wouldn't answer, pretended he didn't hear. She re-asked the question, and he dropped off. Should that inspire confidence? And then there's this, um, the extent of the spread of COVID-19 in China, only 80,000 cases in that uh, 11 million person hamlet, it's constitutes a hamlet in China, in Wuhan, um, uh, 2,500 deaths. Chinese investigative outlet reports that when mortuaries opened back up in the uh, Hubei capital, Wuhan, People had to wait in line for as long as five hours to receive the remains of their loved ones lost during the epidemic. A photo published in this outlet uh, shows a truck loaded with 2,500 urns arriving at the Hanku mortuary. The driver said he had delivered the same amount to the mortuary the day before. Another photo shows stacks of urns inside the mortuary, seven stacks with 500 urns each. That's 3,500. Even more disturbing is this from the Epoch Times, and they've got a pretty good China focused reporter over there named Josh Phillip we've had on the show before. Listen to this. The number of Chinese cell phone users dropped by 21 million in the past three months. The digitation level is very high in China. People can't survive without a cell phone, said a U.S.-based China affairs commentator. Dealing with the government for pensions and Social Security, buying train tickets, shopping, no matter what people want to do, they're required to use cell phones. Required to. The Chinese regime requires all Chinese to use their cell phones to generate a health code, Only with a green health code are Chinese allowed to move in China right now. It's impossible for a person to cancel his cell phone. China introduced mandatory facial scans on December of 2019, December 1st, 2019, to confirm the identity of all persons who registered the phone. As early as September 1 of 2010, 
China required all cell phone users to register phones with a real identification by means of which the state can control people's speech via its monitoring system, which may be coming to a hamlet near you in this country as this proceeds. 21 million cell phone users dropped in the past three months. And just the anecdotal story, the pictures of urns in Wuhan. What are we to make of this? For more on the topics, plural, we're pleased to be joined again by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullen Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of books including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Great. Good to be with you. Start with China. What's your uh, interpretation of those stories? We should start with the Taiwan issue. So Taiwan, because of heavy Chinese pressure to really marginalizes any claim that Taiwan has to sovereignty, has an aggressive campaign around the world to have countries not recognize Taiwan, to have international organizations exclude them, even though in many cases this creates public safety concerns, like ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization. Taiwan has its own national airlines, but they're prohibited from participating in ICAO. So what's the practical consequences of the World Health Organization excluding Taiwan? Well, because of their experience with SARS, Taiwan was the first country to really recognize what was going on in China and really put in place national controls, which enable them more efficaciously than most countries to quickly limit the importing of the infection. And since they limited the importing of the infection, they could be much more efficient at uh, trace cases and, and limiting the spread. They did that in December. Right. If they had been a full participant in the World Health Organization and been able to take their case to the WHO and have it out there in an open and transparent format, many countries would have done what President Trump had did. They would have slapped down travel restrictions, and they would have started putting in their own implementing measures. So in many ways, among the other egregious sins that China committed in terms of exporting the plague around the world, Blocking Taiwan from participating WHO is is just another indictment. Well, well, so so this is this is exactly the point, and and, and so you have Bruce Alward. You just heard him drop off because he won't address right. Taiwan. Doctor David Hyman uh, uh, Heyman was on uh, Face the Nation from France, and he talked about uh, those uh, examples from which we can learn things because they had experience with SARS, so they were at the ready to jump into it to do uh, to do uh, uh, prevention containment, so they didn't have to do mitigation. He mentioned specifically Singapore, South Korea, Hong Kong would not mention Taiwan. And so, again, I, I, to, this all goes to the point of how much can we trust the WHO as a good faith actor, given this massive blind spot? Well, I, I think it raises a lot of issues of credibility. And, and of course, the other the other claim is when China started coming out and saying, oh, we really we really saved the world, we slowed the spread of the disease, even though the Chinese let somewhere between 7 and 9 million visitors who came to China for the Chinese New Year's leave the country when they know it was an incredibly infectious, communicable disease. They let 7 million people out on the, 7 to 9 million people out on the world, uh, and then they turn around and claim that they were the one that really slowed the spread of the disease and alerted the world. The WHA did nothing to debunk that claim, Indeed, the WHO actually complimented China on its response, and China's response was not only late, they not only lied a great deal, they were not only completely non-transparent, non-cooperative in the first months of the outbreak, but they adopted some of the most authoritarian and oppressive measures 
uh, imaginable to stop the spread of the disease. And so, so then, uh, so then, close the loop for me. Going back to the questions about uh, whether or not Chinese is giving us straight numbers, because. Um, the importance of this is not that more people, I mean, it, it is that more people die than are being recognized by the government. That's one part of it. But the other part of it is, well, if they're getting a, a rebound of outbreak and if they're doing the same thing that they did in December and January, which is to try and cover it up, then they're exposing more than just their country. And so this is relevant. Well, it is absolutely relevant. Um, you know, we can't believe the numbers, but we can't believe the numbers out of Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan uh, and, and South Korea. And there, again, what we have seen is um, if you put in aggressive social distancing uh, and you expand testing and treat the disease, you can definitely get the outbreak under control and do what they call bend the curve. The only cases we're seeing there is really people bringing the disease back from other countries. This is a claim that China has also made. Why it's important is, well, we have the other cases we can count on. What's the difference? Well, if China prematurely lifted their controls and they're getting an organic rebound of the disease, that is super important to know. So we just made a very difficult decision in the United States to extend the national social distancing through the end of April uh, on the assumption that, that we're not even going to open up parts of the country until May and that it may be June 1st before we are full-blown going in the economy again. That's a very painful decision. But it was made out of an overabundance of caution that you, you don't want to essentially suppress the wildfire and then walk away while the, 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 the embers are, are, are smoldering and then it, the wildfire blows back up again. If we really understood what was going on in China, it would really help inform our decision. I think based on the information and data we have, the administration's made a very prudent call. But again, it's the Chinese withholding data from the world which is vital to people making decisions, not just about health and safety, but also about uh, how, they, how to deal with their economies, how to deal with international travel. So, uh, you know, China has really, I think, uh, I mean, we could debate exactly what they did or didn't do wrong, but it's very, very difficult to, to come away from this and say that they've been a responsible actor. I think, I think it's impossible to say that. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always for your insights. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks for what you guys do. Keep up the great show. Take care. Thank you. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Vice President and former Vice President Joe Biden, Democrat uh, POTUS nominee, pending Andrew Cuomo, uh, is having enough problems explaining his positions on things and using the English language. For example, this appearance with Anderson Cooper on CNN. I was literally on the phone at least three to four hours a day with my team talking about the detailed implementation. How do we get the money? Where do we do? Who do we go to? Where do we, how, who do we ask for, et cetera? Where do we do the, uh, the implementation? Okay. He doesn't need uh, more problems, but he's got one. Now, this is being wildly underreported right now, this accusation of sexual assault by a former Senate staffer for then Senator Joe Biden. This is back in the 90s. Her name is 
Tara Reed. Uh, yeah, not that Tara Reed from like Sharknado and terrible other terrible movies. No, R E A D E. Tara Reed. Uh, the uh, this is an accusation against a man who said during the Kavanaugh imbroglio that women who make allegations of sexual misconduct are to be believed. I mean, except Tara Reid. We've been here before. But uh, I wanted to to, uh, to defer my time, as it were, to Crystal Ball. Hey, I didn't name her. Bring it up with her parents. Former M- MSNBC anchor. She now hosts this show called Rising on the Hill, thehill.com. It's like a alternative, uh, you know, a video platform. And she had the first on-camera interview with the aforesaid Tara Reid. I want to play what Tara Reid had to say about her encounter with Joe Biden. But then also Crystal Ball, who's really sort of a Bernie, Bolshevik Bernie sympathizer, her distillation of the D.C. press corps, particularly coming from the left, is really, really fun to hear. And, uh, I mean, I just I know I piled on on this show with respect to the press corps quite a bit. But they've just been so brazen in their recklessness and their indifference to the truth or intellectual curiosity that they deserve it. And frankly, that includes the Tara Reid story, as Crystal Ball will explain after you hear from Miss Reid. We were in a semi-private place. It wasn't completely private. He was at first talking to someone. They went away and then he said, here. And then when I gave him the gym bag, it happened all in one motion almost and he had me um against the wall and then his hands were down my skirt and up my skirt and i was wearing um i wasn't wearing face or anything and um he then with his hands uh you know um went from there and i entered me with his hand and as he was trying to kiss me and say things to me. So when I tell you what happened, it's hard because everything kind of happened at once, but there were incremental parts to it. Mm-hmm. And um, meaning he was kissed, trying to kiss me and I was pulling away. And what I remember of that time is, is feeling really shocked, a surprise, because there was no real conversation right beforehand. There was no precursor. It just happened. And then when he did that, um, I was obviously pulling away. And he pulled back and said, you know, come on, man, I heard you liked me. Come on, man, I heard you liked me. That does sound vaguely familiar. Uh, now Crystal Ball on Tara Reid and the the uh, question that's being advanced by those wanting to protect Joe Biden's political interests at present, both in the media and as well as within Democrat circles, and I repeat myself. Why now? Listen to Crystal Ball. Tara says she tried to get her story out other ways, too. She wrote to Elizabeth Warren's office and Kamala Harris as well. She heard nothing back from Kamala and got a standard form letter back from Warren. Two women who, of course, heavily ran on their gender and what their election would represent for women. And then there's the media. Tara wasn't exactly hard to find. After Ryan's article and Katie's interview, I reached out to her separately on Twitter. I heard back within minutes. I'll be honest. I didn't want Rising to be the first on-camera interview for Tara. And I know from speaking with Katie that she didn't want to be the first podcast interview with Tara. Obviously, Katie and I are both seen as friendly to Bernie, which means in the mainstream world that we can't be trusted. I thought Tara deserved a full vetting 
and a fair hearing from a mainstream outlet. But as I reached out to mainstream folks that I know to see if they were interested in breaking this bombshell story, I heard back crickets. Nothing. No one seemed to want to touch it. Tara says she, too, had tried to get a hearing from mainstream journalists only to come up empty. Now ask yourself, if a claim like this had been made against Bernie Sanders or even Donald Trump or another media villain like Edward Snowden, do you think that the accuser would have had any trouble getting press? Do you think it would fall to independent and alternative news to break the story if a woman who worked with Bernie in the 90s made a credible claim of sexual assault? Do you think CNN and MSNBC would bury their heads in the sand? Every reporter in this town would be breaking down their door to be the first to tell that story. Mm. She makes salient points. And uh, Crystal Ball also brought this up, this report by The Intercept, uh, which we didn't get to last week. I saw it last week. We didn't get to it. This is you know, Glenn Greenwald's out- outlet. Uh, Tara Reid uh, uh, tried to have a conversation with Time's Up and the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund. This is the organization that uh, sprung to life during the you know, inception of the whole Me Too movement and Me Too era to provide uh, legal resources to women who have credible claims of sexual assault, sexual harassment. The response from Time's Up, the Time's Up, uh, including the director of the uh, organization, no assistance could be provided to uh, Tara Reid because the person she was accusing, Biden, was a candidate for federal office and assisting a case against him could jeopardize the organization's nonprofit status. That is so patently absurd. And Crystal Ball was right to call uh, them out for this absurd cover story. Then, So anybody running for federal office would have carte blanche, at least as it pertains to worrying about uh, Time's Up financing, the providing the legal financing for any claim against any federal politician. There's nothing there's nothing that would violate the C3 status about providing legal representation or compens or, or, or payment for legal representation for Tara Reid. It's access. It's access to Joe Biden and its support of Joe Biden as the putative nominee against Trump. Admit. Oh, and then there's this just in case you were holding out onto naivete about this. The public relations firm that works on behalf of the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund is SKD, SKD Knickerbocker, whose managing director is Anita Dunn, the top advisor to Joe Biden's presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. I'll let Crystal Ball close. They'll happily trash the dude who's stockpiling Purell or the random lawyer on Twitter who put out an objectionable tweet. They'll gladly provide a venue for allegations against the outsiders upon whom their status and access do not depend. But they've got to be dragged kicking and screaming to do their job when it comes to their own ideological and class brethren. Can't say it better than that. This is the Dan Prof Show. Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, the uh, operative question from all of the uh, leftist bots that uh, manned the desks on cable news channels over the weekend was, does President Trump have blood on his hands? Come on, somebody say it. And then uh, Jake Tapper got Nancy Pelosi to appear on his show. She'll say it. Uh, what the president, his uh, denial at the beginning uh, was deadly. His delaying of getting... Uh, it, Equipment to where it continues is delaying getting equipment to where it's needed is deadly. And now I think the best thing would be to do is to prevent uh, more loss of life rather than open things up so that because we just don't know. We have to have testing, testing, testing. That's what we said from the start before we can evaluate uh, what the the, the, uh, nature of it is in some of these other regions as well. But as the president fiddles, people are dying. And we have to we just have to take every precaution. President is fiddling, huh? The guy who just signed uh, signed off on it, effectively six trillion dollars worth of disaster relief, not to mention uh, what has been done in terms of the marshalling of resources and the distribution of those resources. The same guy who just uh, uh, did a bid a fare thee well to a U.S. Uh, military hospital ship. On Saturday, headed for New York today, that guy? Okay. Well, Jake Tapper wanted to confirm. He understood what she was saying, and uh, he confirmed it. But are you saying that that his downplaying ultimately cost American lives? Yes, I am. I'm saying that. We really want to work in a unifying way to get the job done here. Clearly. But we cannot continue to, to allow him to continue uh, to make these uh, underestimation underestimates of what is actually happening here. There's the story. President Trump underestimated this thing from the beginning, and it's a colossal failure, and he has blood on his hands and rinse and repeat for the next eight months. That's the play. Now, that does not apply to Bill de Blasio or Democrat politicians. Bill de Blasio followed up uh, on Tapper's show on CNN And listen to this exchange about who was saying what just a few moments ago and whether or not they should be held accountable. So let's talk about the way that you've handled uh, the response in New York City. I want you to take a listen to yourself and your message to New Yorkers. These are three different clips. One's from January, one's from February, and one's from early this month. It's important to go about your lives Uh, continue living as you have. New Yorkers should go about our lives, continue doing what we do. This should not stop you from going about your life, should not stop you from going to Chinatown and going out to eat. We want people still to go on about their lives. We want people uh, to rest assured that a lot is being done to protect them. That last clip was from March 13th, just about two weeks ago. In retrospect, is that message, at least in part, to blame for how rapidly the virus has spread across the city? Jake, we should not be focusing, in my view, on anything looking back on any level of government right now. Look forward. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Gabriel, editor-in-chief of Ricochet.com, contributor to azcentral.com. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, you bet. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to engage. I don't want to you know, descend to the level of the left when it comes to cheap shotting people for what uh, nobody predicted could come to pass, and particularly at the scale. Um, but it is uh, noteworthy, the standards that are being applied by the Beltway media to uh, certain politicians versus others. 
Yeah, it is amazing. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed with de Blasio's quote. I don't know if I'm allowed to look back all the way to Sunday to attack uh, the press coverage of it. I know that's far in the past, and we only want to look forward. But, uh, yeah, Chuck Todd actually brought up, does he have blood on his hands? Right. You know, it, it's just, that, you know, this is journalists, and uh, you've definitely seen it on social media. They're, like, cheering for death. They're cheering for failure. And there's a good reason why Gallup did a poll, came out late last week, um, just talked about how do you think the various institutions in America are handling this crisis. And the very bottom and the only one in negative territory was the press. Uh, they are just rooting for dissent. They're rooting for panic. And it's really disgusting to see because this is the time we actually need a press who's covering what's going on, which cities are worse, which counties are fairly safe. You know, They provide so much uh, good information now but they just use, want to use it to make cheap shots on their political opponents. Once again, it's disappointing. Yeah, the Gallup poll was interesting last week because it gave everyone essentially the benefit of the doubt, which is where the American public is. You know, I, I assume everybody's trying to do their best. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But I just can't give the press corps the benefit of the doubt because I see <laughs> them as, you know, intentionally trying to whip up frenzy. And I don't appreciate it. Uh, we'll, we're going to pick up right there with John Gabriel, Editor-in-Chief of Ricochet, contributor to azcentral.com right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with John Gabriel, editor-in-chief of Ricochet.com, contributor to ACCentral.com. And, uh, John, you mentioned that uh, Chuck Todd tried to get Joe Biden to take the bait of uh, does Trump have blood on his hands, and he wouldn't. Joe Biden wouldn't. But uh, that doesn't mean other people won't, uh, not just Nancy Pelosi. This piece in uh, Foreign Policy, uh, uh, foreignpolicy.com, the coronavirus is the worst intelligent failure in U.S. history. The Trump administration, uh, uh, Mike Zenko writing this piece, the Trump administration cumulatively failed both in taking seriously the specific repeated intelligence community warnings about a coronavirus outbreak and vigorously pursuing the nationwide response initiatives commensurate with the perceived threat, so on and so forth. This is the biggest self-inflicted intelligence catastrophe in American history, and it's all Trump's fault, despite the fact that we know from Paul Miller over at Georgetown that there was a National Intelligence Council report about the prospect of a pandemic back in 2004 and what that could look like and the sort of strains it could put on our economy and our healthcare infrastructure and uh, administration after administration, infectious disease expert after infectious, uh, infectious disease expert for the last 16 years really didn't do anything to abide some of those dire predictions and that intelligence estimate. But now it's all Trump's fault. Yeah, and it's um, this is how America faces or doesn't want to face crises until they hit. Uh, this is uh, World War II, um, Pearl Harbor all over again. Um, when Yamamoto said, I fear we've awakened the sleeping giant, and that's what's happening now. Now you're seeing things really kick into overdrive with everybody. 
not only the federal government, who are not first responders, federal government is the final responder. Uh, before that, local officials like de Blasio is supposed to handle it, then the governor, then Washington, D.C. That's how America has always worked if D.C. got involved at all. And um, But now you're just seeing things roar into action with you know, all these wonderful distilleries, who I'm a big fan of, I might add, um, switching <laughs> over to make hand sanitizer. You've got people inventing new, very inexpensive and reliable ventilators. Uh, you have new testing coming out. Everybody's just jumping to and getting it done now. And I, I think what you're seeing now, and what I wish the press would focus on, is Americans helping Americans roaring to action. Um, you know, the government isn't going to solve a virus. That's not how it works. They can help organize things. Uh, they can help provide relief to people when needed. But um, it's us, it's each one of us uh, working together and fighting it. And I don't know what it's like in D.C. because, thank the good Lord, I don't live in D.C. But, you know, I see my neighbors setting up food pantries. I see my neighbors helping each other, not panicking and running around and screaming at politicians like the press seemingly things would help in a situation like this. You know, I, I uh, hate to be fatalistic about this, but but I question whether or not uh, good arguments, the facts, uh, substantive questions on point, whether any of that matters, because it seems to me that these uh, new Soviets uh, are fine to be wrong on the arguments if they're enemies in the course of making the, the arguments under one or two mis, misspoken subordinate clauses they can seize upon or refashion, just like you've got super PAC ads right now, up now on behalf of Joe Biden still saying something they know to be untrue, that Trump ever called the virus itself a hoax. They're still repeating that. I just wonder if any of that matters for uh, those in, in academia and media that have so much cultural sway and create sort of the demand that they then supply. Yeah, I, I don't think it does. Uh, what they're trying to do is wrest political control away, not only from Donald Trump, they're trying to wrest political control away from the American people who put him in office. And um, it obviously didn't work in 2016. And I think that what they're going to see, and you know, anything can happen, I'm not going to make political predictions, but the more they try this 2016 playbook of just throwing everything, including the kitchen sink, um, even if it's deceptive, even if it's a lie, um, they look like they're rooting against America. Um, if you are a hardcore committed socialist living in New York State, you want Trump to succeed because it means the lives of you and your friends. Yeah. If you're you know, in a deep red state, the same thing. You're rooting for him to succeed. Even if you didn't vote for the guy – you're rooting for him to succeed because you want the country to succeed in this situation, even if you're going to vote against him in November. And the press is just really just giving the game away where it's like they want this to be horrible. And um, it just oozes through in their coverage. And once again, they're just going to continue to lose viewers. I don't know. At some point, you would think they just want to keep their job be more balanced but apparently that doesn't matter to them ideology matters to them well it, i mean it, it just comes through uh from every direction this is a remarkable piece that nbc news posted that's uh, something you say often i suppose but adam frank who's an astrophysicist at the university of rochester uh argues that uh coronavirus it's just a dress rehearsal for climate change Fire drill for our planet's future. So this is good. This is rather than tamping down the idea of a Green New Deal or climate change and the specious basis for the apocalyptic predictions, they're doubling down. 
this is this is you know basically a a, a minuscule. Uh, uh, iteration of what climate change is going to mean if we don't say take the same sort of uh, comprehensive state action permanently on a go forward basis. Yeah, and um, I, I think uh, the people pushing things like uh, Green New Deal and all this, it, it, they better take a back seat because that isn't happening, especially right now. We're in a situation uh, where we, you know, Nancy Pelosi to hide in a bunch of Green New Deal stuff into the coronavirus relief package. And I think the American people, once again, will get more and more resentful of these people trying to take over, you know, the American form of government uh, for the next 10 years when they need to be focused on the immediate concerns that we have just about public health. That's what they need to focus on right now. And these pie-in-the-sky dreams that they have, um, I think it's just a really big backlash is going to happen to this. And, um, you know, I... De Blasio over the weekend said, if a church or synagogue meets, um, even though they're not supposed to, I might close them down permanently. No, uh, no, Vladimir, that's not going to happen, because <laughs> we have something called the Constitution. And gosh, it's better for the politicians if they work on this and solve the crisis at hand. Um, and I think it's only going to hurt them if they look like they're uh, just kind of freelancing, trying to push stuff they've been trying to push for 40 years. He is John Gabriel, editor-in-chief of ricochet.com, contributor to azcentral.com as well. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and let's close with a little levity. Uh, we had a, some musical fun with uh, the Sound of Music parody slash PSA earlier in the show. Uh, I was uh, forwarded this online uh, from some listeners to my morning show in Chicago. It's good stuff. Uh, in the uh, era of social distancing, but, you know, wanting to you know, maybe maintain the lines of communication if you're uh, you're uh, single and, you know, looking to make a love connection. Uh, how do you do it? You need some icebreakers, right? Well, got some for you, for you folks who are on, you know, clowndating.com or mulletpassions.com, the popular dating sites. You know what I'm t- saying. All right, you, you ready? Here's a couple. Try these on. Now, I, you know, my delivery is probably not great. Why Dan Prof is single. But uh, so just think about the, the uh, attractive quotient of these lines. How about this one? Baby, do you need toilet paper? Because I can be your Prince Charmin. I need a rim shot here. I saw you from across the bar. Stay there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You can't spell quarantine without U-R-A-Q-T. That's a, that's a little esoteric. That's, you know, got to be for the uh, intelligent woman or, or man, the speller. I mean, yeah, in this day and age, you got to assume that these pickup lines could be used by women, too, I suppose. Uh, how about uh, since all the public libraries are closed, I'm checking you out instead. Without you in my life, 
without you, my life is as empty as the supermarket shelf. You can't stumble on it if you want to be successful. That's pretty good. I like that one. And, of course, uh, this is really anti-PC in so many levels, both the virus and, and the song and parodies. Baby, it's COVID-19 outside. Hi-yo. All right. Well, if you think you can do better, then, you know, Godspeed on uh, diapermates.com or whatever websites you peruse. Uh, great news. Close the show. Give you a viewing recommendation, assuming you're not on the dating sites and you're looking for time to fill. No Safe Spaces. This is the documentary produced by our friend and colleague Dennis Prager, along with Adam Carolla. Number one political documentary of 2019. Now available to watch for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com. Make you laugh, make you cry. Has a 99% audience rating on RottenTomatoes.com. Don't listen to Hollywood. Listen to your peers and their reviews. It's the highest rating for any film last year. Uh, No Safe Spaces is a film that illustrates how America is exceptional. It shows how our foundational American values have come under attack and how you can fight back. It also, importantly, has uh, reviews from across the political spectrum, in addition to Prager and Corolla, Jordan Peterson and the like. You have uh, those on the left, including Van Jones, Cornell West, and Alan Dershowitz speaking about the importance of free minds and free speech in a free society. So take advantage of this limited time offer. NoSafeSpaces.com is where you can find the number one political documentary of 2019. NoSafeSpaces.com. Thank you again for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.